Well, good morning. At long last, some of you may know that uh, the powers that be have been after me to preach up here for over a year now, and so I finally deigned to do it, and you're all very welcome. Um, <laughs> my goal this morning is really, really simple. I want to give everybody here one simple handle for imitating the Apostle Paul and his ministry that uh, if you're like me, you may have never noticed this before. You've noticed it, but you've never really thought of it. And I think it's a handle that if we all grab a hold of it, will change our churches, will change us as pastors, as shepherds, it'll change our people. Um, you may already be good at this. I hope that's true of you. If not, that's why we're here, right? To encourage each other. So here's what's cool. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I went to, uh, on this like retreat in Destin, Florida, with 200 other lead pastors, for lead pastors only. It was all expenses paid. Somebody hooked us up. We had no idea what it was going to be like. And there were pastors from all over the place. A lot of charismatics, a lot of assemblies of God. It's just like, you didn't know who you were talking to if you had much in common at all, except you had some claim to Jesus. You didn't even, you didn't even know if you, were, if you like, were talking to somebody who held the scriptures tightly. So you'd go and you'd talk to somebody and they'd seem cool and then you'd realize, well, uh, we're not really on the same page. And you'd go and talk to somebody and be like, man, we're not on the same page. And then he would name drop Tim Bailey on you, which did happen. It's weird. But it was cool. It was fun. But what's cool about being here is that, man, unless one of you are going to jump up and start speaking in tongues, I know that we're about on the same page in this room. We're starting from the same place. We're on the same team. We have the same mission. We're lined up. We all believe in pastoral care. We all take preaching and teaching and counseling and discipleship seriously. We, we see ourselves together in the lineage of the reformers and of the Puritans. We take seriously the call to imitate the Apostle Paul and the faithful men who have gone on before us, like we read about earlier in the service. And we all believe in taking that to a broken, messed up, culture, a rebellious world where the church is failing to actually love and shepherd its people, at least the way that we see it done in scripture. And we believe in helping each other. We believe in holding each other accountable. And that's why we came together, right? That's why we're here. That's why we formed a presbytery. That's why we've locked arms. That's why we're planning churches together. That's why we're about to have a long presbytery meeting full of serious work and really boring, tedious process. And we're going to suffer through it together because we believe in the work. Sweet. So step back, take a look around. That's us. It's awesome. So does anybody here need me to make a case that we should be imitating the Apostle Paul? Anybody? You can raise your hand. If you raise your hand, you can leave because <laughs> it's who we are or at least who we aspire to be, what we want to be, right? In our DNA, at least we feel bad about failing in that direction, right? That's the direction we want to fail in. We all believe we want to be like the Apostle Paul. We all believe that we see his pastoral care in his epistles, and we can learn from that, right? Okay, so my goal today is not to make us feel bad for not living up to Paul or Calvin or anybody else. It's just to help us be a little bit more like them. 
in the best way. So uh, I was preaching through Philippians a year ago about this time. I was reading Martin Lloyd-Jones, and he pointed out something that uh, has stuck with me, and I've just tried to hold on to it and remember it from time to time. And I just, uh, like an idiot, started preaching through the book of Romans and was reminded of it again. Okay, it's simple and it's obvious. You ready? Here it is. The Apostle Paul begins every single letter by reminding his people who they are in Christ and by finding something to praise about them, about the people that he's writing to. Every single letter except for one. 13 letters, one exception. So here's my exhortation today. It's really simple. It has three parts to it. I'm taking my cues from Andrew last night. We'll see if we have success in simplicity. Number one, see your church as God sees them. Number two, uh, say it. Tell them how God sees them. Three, show them how you know it. Okay? See it, say it, show it regularly. I'm going to prove it really quickly, okay? We're going to go through each of Paul's epistles, one by one in order. All right? You ready for this? I wanted to save this one for last, which is Romans, right? Because it's like the one letter that Paul writes to the church that he doesn't know anything about, and he still finds something to praise about them, and that's awesome. Listen, pay attention. To all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is proclaimed in all the world. They're saints, and their faith is famous. All right, moving on. First Corinthians. I'm always amazed that the church at Corinth is a church. Like, but listen to what he's going to say. Like, it's ridiculous, right? And think about, like, what comes next in the letter, okay? All the things they're doing. You got a man who's sleeping with his father's wife. You have all kinds of drunkenness at the Lord's table and weird questions about sex. And this is what he says. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him, in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you're not lacking in any gift, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. They're sanctified in Christ Jesus. They're called to be saints. They're in every way enriched in Christ, in all speech and all knowledge. They're not lacking any gift. They will be sustained guiltless. This is Corinth. Again in 2 Corinthians, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us all in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. 
For as we share abundantly in Christ's suffering, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken. For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. Saints, holy ones, who patiently endure the same sufferings as the apostles, whose hope remains unshaken. Galatians. Ephesians. (laughs) Galatians, even in Galatians, where he can't come up with anything to say about them now, that's good. What does he do later? He remembers things that they were. And he reminds them of what they were. I remember how you were ready to pluck out your own eyes. Ephesians. It's interesting, it's not a personal letter, it's meant to be circulated, right? Although Paul had a very personal relationship with the Ephesian church. Just the same, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're going to skip down a little bit, but for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. Saints who are faithful in Christ Jesus, he's heard of their love, he's heard of their faith. He thanks God for them. Colossians. We're going to do, it's going to take a while. To the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. Of this you have heard before in the word of the, tr- of the truth, the gospel which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit in- and increasing, as it also does among you. Since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth, just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant, he's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with knowledge, the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. Saints, your faithful brothers, your faith and love and hope are laid up for you in heaven. The word of truth has come to you. It's bearing fruit among you since the day we've heard of it. Epaphras has made known to us your love. Thessalonians. Paul, Savannah, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you, mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you, not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. We know that God has chosen you. When's the last time you've said something like that? And you became imitators of us. Sorry, you know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake, and you became imitators of us. And of our Lord, for you received the word in much affliction, 
with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. You're an example. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. We know you're chosen. You're imitators of us. You received the word of God in the midst of affliction with joy. You became an example to everyone around you. God's word has sounded forth from you. Your faith has gone forth everywhere. We don't need to, we don't need to say anything. It's famous. Everyone reports it to us. You turn to God from idols. Again to the Thessalonian church. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in, all, in, in the afflictions that you are enduring. Your faith is growing, your love is increasing, you're steadfast, you have faith in the midst of affliction and persecution, we brag on you to other churches. How many of us speak this way to our churches? They're saints. They all have things to commend them. God is at work in them. There is fruit. Do you see it? Do you see them as God sees them? Do you see what God is doing in their midst? Do you commend it? It's amazing. Do they know that? Okay, we're not done. We have more letters. That's how he writes to churches. How about the fellow elders and pastors and leaders? To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. Timothy, my true child. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. My beloved child, I remember your tears. I long to see you. I'm reminded of your sincere faith and of your family. Fan into flame the gift that you have. Titus, my true child in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. My true child, I gave you responsibility for a reason. I trust you. Do your job. Do what I put you there to do. Philemon, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, 
to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Beloved fellow worker, sister, fellow soldier, I hear of your love, I hear of your faith, I rejoice and I'm comforted by your love. You refresh the hearts of the saints. Churches are saints. Pastors and elders are sons or fellow soldiers. Saints, sons, and soldiers. They all have something to commend about them. And he takes pains to do it at the top of every single letter. Unless they're Galatians. Who pastors the Galatian church here? Anybody? Do you see your people as God sees them? Do you see what God is doing in them? Do you show it to them? Do you praise the work of God in them and do you thank God for them? How about here? The Apostle Paul is not a flatterer. You know what comes next in each of those letters. Sometimes very hard things. I hope we all work hard to imitate the Apostle Paul in his discipline, in his exhortation, and in his rebuke. I also hope that we learn to imitate the Apostle Paul in his love and care and affection, in his wisdom. If you're like me, it's an example you don't often consider, but since Lloyd-Jones hit me with that a year ago, I've been thinking about it. And reminded of Richard Baxter's Reformed pastor. You remember what his first direction is when he says you, when you go to visit people and care for them and deal with them? I do because it's one of those words that you have to look up and I just have never forgotten it. I hear some chuckles. Somebody knows what the word is. Say it out loud if you got it. Mollify them. Very first direction. Mollify them. Soften them up. Soften them up. Ease their fears. As you come and as you go, it's his last direction too. Mollify them. Soften them up. Ease their fears and anxieties. Let them feel your love. This is a pattern. This is a formula. It's repeated. And it's not beneath the Apostle Paul to have patterns and formulas that he repeats. They have a purpose. You say, I love you, I hope, to your wife and kids every single day for a reason. Is it just pro forma, or does it matter? It matters. If you love people, you work to make them feel loved. We all know this when it comes to our people, right? Like, this is a lot of, pre- uh, uh, certainly premarital counseling, but just marriage counseling is like, Hey, you need to not just like love each other, but you need to love each other, make each other feel loved. Your wife needs to feel loved by you every day. 
Your husband needs to feel respected, needs to feel like you believe in him every day. Put a reminder in your stupid smartphone to send a text. And watch your marriage improve, idiot sheep. You do these kinds of things with your people, right? You say these kinds of things like, hey, you've got a tool, you've got a smartphone. Put a reminder in it and just send your wife a text every day. I love you. <laughs> See if it doesn't help. Paul has a pattern. He has a formula. He does it this top of every letter, every time he's got something to say to people. We want to follow his example, right? We would do well to imitate it out loud. And if not every time out loud, at least in our own hearts, right? As we pray, as we approach the pulpit, before we step into a counseling session. See our people as God sees them. Say it, show it, remind ourselves. Okay. See them as God sees them. We have to learn to see them as God sees them. It will change us first, actually. It will change how we think about them because we'll see them as saints. We'll see them as God's holy ones, as God's adopted children. That's important to remind ourselves because it's easy in our care for our people to see them as our enemies, as God's enemies. I don't mean we actually call them that. I just mean that we're often tempted to think of them antagonistically in a lot of ways, as burdens, as bums, as worse, as hardened rebels, as frauds and posers, and certainly we have those people in our midst. But it's easy for us to fixate on the negative, especially when we're working hard, pedaling fast to have discernment and to actually have faith to exhort and rebuke our people. When we get into the pulpit, it's easy to assume our people aren't there to learn and to grow. When we go into counseling sessions, it's easy to assume they're not going to listen. It's easy to assume that their hearts are cold and all we can do is maybe get a little ember glowing if we're lucky. Why would we approach them that way? Well, We've been burned before. Our hearts have been broken. We feel our own inadequacies. We become afraid. We feel powerless to change people. And we are. God has to do the work. But when we feel impotent and powerless and allow ourselves to be driven by fear, we start to construct stories and narratives that are unhelpful. We begin to project our fears onto our people. If you find yourself winning arguments with your people in the shower and in the car, you have this problem. This person's out to get me. What's actually going on is they're conspiring to divide the church. Well, sometimes we have to think about our people and be careful. But also we need to be careful that we're not just engaged in some kind of defense mechanism out of fear, out of self-protection out of the kind of fear that flees when no one pursues. Fear and insecurity drive a lot of bad pastoral care. They also drive a lot of bad parenting too, by the way. And we're just fathers in the household of faith. Are you tempted to view God's holy ones as your enemies? What side does that put you on? Well, Jake, I'm being careful not to be a flatterer. I'm concerned about the hypocrite. Be careful that you're not being wiser than God. The Apostle Paul was not a flatterer. The Apostle Paul was concerned about the hypocrite. Don't be wiser than Scripture. 
We do have to be careful and guard ourselves against flattery, but addressing God's people the way that God does in the Bible is not that. Your people are not your enemy unless you are God's enemy. They're God's saints. Let me uh, ask you a question. Um, Tate Bailey is not here. If you were to treat Tate, if Joseph were to treat, everybody know who Tate is? Tate's Joseph's adopted son. Joseph Tate Bailey the seventh. If you were to treat Tate as an outsider in your home because he was adopted, what would that do to him? If you were to treat him as if he were not worthy of the name Joseph Tate Bailey the seventh, if he had to prove his worthiness of bearing that name to you, if he had to prove that he wasn't a usurper of the line because he was adopted, because of the color of his skin, what would that do to him? What if you went away on a trip and I came and I watched over your house and I put that into his heart and into his mind? You want to throttle me. Why? He's your son and you love him. God is a better father than you. God loves his people. God loves his sons. Jesus loves his bride. Do you think that way about your people? They're God's sons and daughters. They're God's children. They're the bride of Christ. You're a steward in God's house. It's not to say that there's not a time, there may not be a time where Tate Bailey or any of our children make themselves unworthy and need to be disciplined. But is your whole church under discipline? Have they been excommunicated? Or are they God's saints? See them as God sees them. And then say it the way you do with your children. We have to remind our children, we have to remind our people of their calling and identity in Christ. If we want people to act as God's children, we need to treat them as God's children. We need to treat them as God's holy ones, and then we need to teach them how to live up to that calling. I know a teacher, I spent some time in her classroom, and I observed this, that every boy in that class who was in the least bit boyish was punished for being a boy. Treated as if he were a bad kid. He became a bad kid in his own mind. It was the identity that he took on because it was what was defined for him in kindergarten. So he acted like the bad kid from then on. So much so I decided my boys weren't gonna have that teacher. Do you think it surprised me to find out that the teacher's daughter became a lesbian? What would, what would, what would you guess? Come on, it's not rocket science. What else would not surprise you? I don't know. 
what the issues are, but guess what? Here's what's almost certainly true. She was hurt by a man, and she found it too painful to deal with, so she spent the rest of her life punishing little boys for being boys. Instead of dealing with her pain or grief or regret or guilt, she simply projected it onto boys in her classroom and communicated boy equals bad, girls equal good, boys who act like girls equal good. If there's a lesson that Tim Bailey burned into my mind, it's that men will rise or fall to the expectations we have for them. As a mental, I expect my kids will play ball and they'll be good. I set the bar, I reinforce it. When they play well, I tell them I'm, I'm proud of them. They're good ball players. It takes care of itself then. Try this experiment on your kids. Don't flatter them. Just find something to justly praise and see if you don't get more of it. Take your eight-year-old daughter and hand her a book and say, hey, I think you might like this. Read it. Walk away. Come back five, ten minutes later and say, I love seeing you reading books and see what happens. It's magic. She is now a reader. (laughs) You get more of what you praise. I love seeing you read books. It makes me proud of you. I'm proud that you're a reader. God expects his children to love him and to walk in his ways and to want to walk in his ways. Our people are his children and his holy ones. And here's the thing. Hearing that and embracing it in their hearts puts pressure on them to live up to that calling. A good kind of pressure. The right kind of pressure. It helps prepare their hearts to receive your exhortations to holiness. Just like telling your boys you're proud of them for reading puts pressure on them that they want to own for themselves. Oh yeah. I am a reader. It's how my dad sees me, so it's true, and he loves it. So, man, well, I'm bored, but I guess I should go read a book. You're God's holy ones. It's who you are in Christ. Just like being told that you're ministers of God, set apart by God for the work of the ministry. Does that flatter you? Or does it apply a certain kind of pressure? You stand in the line of the apostles and the prophets, of the reformers. Strengthen you? Yeah. Apply pressure too? Yeah. We belong. Great. (laughs) Now live up to it. Act like you belong. Do you name Calvin? Okay, Calvinist. Pawn your library for the widows in your church. You name the name of Calvin, you better live up to it. Isn't that what you felt yesterday morning? (laughs) Whoa! All right, see it? Say it? Show it. We have to show what God has done in the lives of our people. We need to remind ourselves of the fruit of his Holy Spirit in their lives. You feel impotent and down in ministry? Step back and remind yourself of what God has done. How many times have you looked out on the congregation and just sort of reminded or been reminded by God of the stories of your people and where they've come from? Doesn't it give you hope and faith 
Because they've responded to God's love and discipline before, haven't they? They've grown. They've responded to the preaching of the word. They've been changed. It's borne fruit. Look what God has done. That will give you faith and confidence that speaking the truth now, saying the hard thing now, will also bear fruit, even if it's difficult and painful, even if it's done with much fear and trembling. And we need to take that a step further. We need to show our people what God has done for them because it gives them faith and hope too. And it helps them receive the preaching of the word because, you know, discipline does stink. (laughs) But look at the fruit I've already seen it bear in my life. I can take a little bit more. It's good for me. When we praise the work of God among our people, it mollifies them. Yay, we feel like Puritans because we said the word mollify. It mollifies, it, it, it helps them. It helps them feel loved. If we acknowledge and commend the fruit of God in their lives and the fruit of their hard work, it helps them trust us when we have hard things to say because we see what they've done, the work that they've done and given themselves to. And they can trust we're not just there to tear them down and just be critical. And they can trust that they're not just a hopeless cause. God's at work in them. He'll see it through to the end. Okay. What's the risk if we don't do these things? The same risk that we as parents take when we never praise our kids. We don't see them as individuals made in God's image. We treat them as if they don't belong. We make them vulnerable to wolves. We make them vulnerable to flatterers. They won't grow and they won't mature. Think about that teacher again for a minute. The places where we have pain and regret, the places where we have sin and guilt, if we don't take them to Jesus, those things to Jesus, to Jesus, try to push them down and they'll find their ways out. And we'll look for somebody to punish or blame. Some way of addressing those things in other people. Because we can't bear to address it in ourselves and we have not taken it to Jesus. Many parents do this, right? And you see it in your churches. They treat their children as extensions of themselves instead of as people but just the bad parts. We all do that in one way or another, right? That's why when we look at our kids, we all see like the thing that drives us most crazy is the thing that reminds us of ourselves, right? It's the stuff in ourselves we haven't learned to deal with yet, haven't learned to control. So we try to control it in them. It's stuff that we haven't taken to Jesus, so we try to punish it in them. Sometimes we as pastors can treat our people that way too. And instead of shepherding the flock, we end up trying to hurt our own demons. Sheep get caught in the crossfire. Let me give an example of this. All my examples are sports and fitness. My hobby is staying alive. It's working out so far. That was hilarious. I'm glad that you thought it was hilarious. Comedy is also my hobby. Have you ever been to a Little League baseball game? If you go as an objective outside observer, it is highly possible 
you're going to run into the kind of coach that lives inside the heads of his players, especially his own son. He treats his, his players as if they're out there to sabotage the game, as if they're unaware of their mistakes. He creates, a, he creates an environment that's ruled by fear of failure. You seen that sort of thing? Yeah? You know what I'm talking about? Here's a question. What kid on a ball field's trying to lose? What kid is out there actually sabotaging things? What kid is unaware that the ball just went between his legs? Stupid. That kid might exist, like he, there, you might have an oblivious kid, up, but he's pretty rare. Andy cops to being that kid. <laughs> You're the one that deserved it, Andy. <laughs> but the rest of us got it because you deserved it. So thanks for that. <laughs> now listen, it's really rare, right? Because baseball's a father-son sport and every son's out there trying to please his dad and make him proud. Why is that dad, though, that coach dad, why is he so uptight? Why is he so punitive when his kid makes a mistake? Because he doesn't see him as a kid who's trying, that's why. He sees him as an extension of himself. He sees all his own failures, all his own shortcomings, all his inability to succeed on the ball field in, or in his own life, all of his own impotence, all of his own inability to make his father proud, embodied in his son, who just bobbled the ball. And it comes out as rage. Can't deal with it. He's insecure, he's afraid, he's a critic, he's not a coach. He's not out there to make a young man, he's out there to deal with his demons. And what's gonna happen? In 20 years, his son will be out there on the ball field dealing with the same demons, passing it on down the line, trying to use his own son to prove himself to his dad who isn't there and doesn't care. It'll get results for a time. It won't get you health though. It'll get you results because you can control boys. You can bully them, but not men. Weak men, but not real men. You can't lead men that way. Not the strong. Our kids are a mirror. What makes us angry, what makes us afraid, what makes us irrational, what makes us grasp for control, it's all there. It's a reflection of the things in us that we refuse to deal with before God. A reflection of our own hearts in rebellion against God. Against dealing with pain, against dealing with grief, regret, and above all, guilt. And our people can be the same kind of mirror for us as pastors. Does that make sense? They can be a reflection to us of the things that feel outside of our control either in ourselves or in the world out there in D.C. And we can become caught in processing our own demons through them instead of seeing them as sheep who need a shepherd. If that's what we do, we will create a culture of judgment and criticism that is not aligned with God's good judgment. Anybody like being under other people's judgments? Who likes to be judged? 
Have you ever been a part of a culture of constant criticism? Where there's no distinction between a sin and a mistake? I mean, that's what's happening on the ball field. There's no distinction between a sin and a mistake. Your homes can be that way. They will feel like prisons to your children. It's because it's impossible to survive. It's hard to breathe. You feel like someone's always looking over your shoulder. You're either perfect or you're worthless. There's no middle ground. Leads to a culture of hiding and covering things up. Leads to hypocrisy. It leads to self-righteous signaling. Our presbytery could become that way. If we're ruled by weakness, insecurity, and fear. Instead of having a culture of love and honesty and forgiveness and generosity. In a marriage or in your home or in the church, in that kind of culture, you're under a microscope. It's not possible to have a real relationship. It's toxic and it's immature and it's exhausting. And because we're sinners and weak and fearful and insecure, it's a temptation we all face creating that kind of a culture. Especially if we're repenting of being wusses who need to, you know, learn to have, make some judgments and say some hard things. What happens to our people? Our people become vulnerable to all the things that we oppose. They become vulnerable to flattery. Just like refusing to show your children affection makes them vulnerable to predators. Just like if they feel like they don't belong, they'll look for the place where they do belong. Just like if they feel under a microscope, they'll learn how to hide really, really well. Our people will be the same way. All we're talking about is love. That's it. In one simple way, you can fight your temptation to just be a noisy gong and clanging cymbal. Who builds resentment instead of leadership. So here's my exhortation. See your people as God sees your people by faith. As saints and holy ones. Even if you're pastoring the church at Corinth, tell them so. Say it. Reflect on what God has done. Remind yourself and remind them and give thanks to God together. In my tiny little church plant, I have recovering drug addicts. I have people who have committed adultery. I have people who have had abortions and people who have paid for abortions. I have a teen pregnancy. I have parents who don't know the first clue about loving and shepherding their kids. I have baby Christians who know their babies and I have baby Christians who don't know their babies and think they're mature. And what I have are saints, God's holy ones. In various stages of maturity that I've seen God at work in. I have to remind myself of that. If I'm going to shepherd them by faith, I need to tell them that and I need to call them to the standard of being God's saints and I need to remind them and myself of God's work in them so that they'll have faith to persevere in it and so that I'll have faith to call them to further obedience and maturity. See it. Say it. Show it. Let's pray.